His work and personality place him in that elect group of leading figures in the church, about whom there are few, if any, nonpartisan judgments. He has been portrayed as both a narrow dogmatist and an ecumenical church person, a ruthless inquisitor and a sensitive, caring pastor, an ascetic, cold authoritarian, and a compassionate humanist, a rigorous individualist, and a social thinker, a plotting systematizer, and the theologian's theologian who finally completed the doctrine of the Trinity, a man dominated by logic and a man of contradictory traits and consistencies, a theoretician of capitalism and of socialism, the tyrant of Geneva and a defender of freedom, a dictator and a revolutionary. Who am I talking about today, James? <laughs> uh, someone who couldn't possibly be all of those things. <laughs> yes. Well, well, I don't know. I think the person we're talking about, uh, I can see where maybe all those things come from. But sure. you're right. You can't be all those things at once. That was a quote <clears throat> for our listeners uh, from Carter Lindbergh from his book, The European Reformation's Third Edition. And it was about John Calvin. That's who we are going to talk about uh, today. As a reminder for our listeners, you're listening to Doth Protest Too Much. James and me, Andrew, are joining you today. Glad to be back with y'all. Just a reminder, if you have not uh, done so already, please give us a rating uh, and or review. Um, You know, whatever streaming platform you listen to us through, uh, if it allows you to do that, that would be great. James, it's been a little while. Let's catch up, man. I know you had a lock in the other day, but but kind of more broadly, just more general. How's the last? How's the summer been? How did summer go? The summer's been pretty good. Um, we 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 had a a fairly steep drop off of uh, church attendance. I don't know about y'all at St. Michael's, but um, but then the the first Sunday after school started for us here in Stafford County, Virginia, we started school in early August, early to mid August. Um, and that first Sunday, we had probably, I don't know, 10 or 15 more people than normal. So that was yep. great. That is awesome. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I had um, for for a little while, I had gotten to where I was feeling a little bit of burnt, a little bit of burnout um, mm-hmm. just in general, but um, especially with preaching and this summer preaching some from the Old Testament, some from Romans, some from the Gospels. I feel kind of reinvigorated, so that was good. That's good. You know, we always hope the good news reinvigorates us. To, um, yeah, well, it's kind of similar. I mean, a lot of churches have uh, this slump in attendance during the summer. We had a drop-off to maybe uh, maybe steeper on some Sundays than, than others. Mm-hmm. Uh, and falls back in the numbers that they've kind of been creeping back up the last two sun well the two sundays before this past sunday this past sunday of course is labor day weekend but um but yeah it's been you know we had um a couple summer events had a group stay from out of town who did a service project they stayed at our church we did a vbs of course all that was in july which seems like forever ago um yeah and uh i've been my i might be clearing my throat a little more than normal um 
I always do that on the podcast. I apologize, listeners. It's just a habit. But I, I got over about a month ago, I got sick. I was on antibiotics for about two weeks. And it was, you know, felt like basically a cold, but turned into like a, well, the doctor said a sinus infection. I took antibiotics for two weeks, uh, you know, pretty much recovered, even had got got a trip uh, to Michigan in there at some point. Hi, James' daughter. She snuck in the room. So, <laughs> um, I know her name, but we're we're on we're on public. So, <laughs> um, and uh, anyway, so I was yeah, um, pretty much recovering. Went to Michigan while still recovering. Felt good up there. The weather was nice. I was up there for my grandma's memorial memorial service for a few days, and it was great to go and reconnect with family. Got back home and and it seemed like it struck back with a vengeance. I had a soup, yeah. the sorest throat I've ever had tested negative for strep. Um, and they didn't put me on anything else. I just kind of waited it out. I'm feeling almost back to normal now, but I'm almost at the point of having to knock on this wooden desk because I just don't know if I really, <laughs> so yeah. I hope so. But anyways, um, y'all didn't tune in to listen to all that about me, but, um, Glad to have you on, James. We are having an interesting episode today. Um, I'll just kind of, I wanted to kind of open up with this, my, um, this little, this stuff I've been kind of thinking about mulling over in my head. You and I have often um, stressed on this podcast, us both being Anglicans, um, how the Anglican faith is reformationally rooted. And of course, at least originally, Doth Protest Too Much was styled as a Protestant podcast. Um, though I think in the past year or so, we've kind of, we well, we've changed our subtitle artwork and, and focus, I think. I think we were really aiming at really being more of a podcast about uh, reformational heritage uh, rather than always playing, oh, you know, the Protestant versus Catholic game. I mean, I, I like to, I like to be more about just Reformation, how the, you know, the, the, both as a fascinating historical epoch, uh, but also um, how the principles of the Reformation, how the, the principles that unite the reformers on all sides, whether Luther, Calvin, Zwingli, Cramner, can inform us today. So uh, us being two Anglican hosts on the show, we've also stressed on here how Anglicanism is the via media or middle way, um, not between Roman Catholicism and Protestantism, as it is often right. presented as today, but as the middle way between Luther and Cal Calvin. But admittedly, right. for all our talk about that, we never tend to focus on that second part, Calvin. <laughs> We've given an awful lot of attention on this podcast to Martin Luther, and I don't think that's an accident because both of us have had similar formative um experiences in our lives were encountering luther's thought and really his genius on a deep level were like seismic level profound shifts for each of us in in right in, in our lives and in our ministry um and and i mean he i i prefer him over calvin but i sure. but that said we have perhaps given a lot of favoritism to him on here Mm -hmm. I think that is worth now giving some focus to Calvin for an episode or two or three. Maybe we'll we'll, we'll rejoin every couple months and do another thing on Calvin's Institutes because uh, we're going to look at the for our listeners. We're going to look at the Institutes, which was Calvin's most significant writing, uh, because as Anglicans, our theology, at least the theology of Anglicanism when it was established, uh, took its cue from Luther as it did Calvin. In fact, maybe more from Calvin. Mm -hmm. Um 
And but I don't know. Before going forward on that, what are your thoughts? Do you do we favor Luther too much on here? Is that a thing? That's my dog's. I'm gonna mute because my dogs are barking. My wife just arrived home. Nice. Uh, no, I don't think we favor Luther too much. Um, you know, one of the things that 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 Zach Hicks said in the episode when he came on, and what Zach talks about in worship by faith alone is that the center, the heart of Anglicanism is a very Lutheran take on the doctrine of justification by faith alone. So like, I'm not saying that the doctrine of the Eucharist or the doctrine of baptism or predestination or anything like that is adiaphora, but what I would say is that like the core doctrine that makes us a reformational body justification by grace through faith alone is very Lutheran in its understanding. So naturally we're going to default to talking about Luther. Um, but when it comes to like Cranmer's doctrine of the Eucharist, when you read, you know, Calvin's institutes and where he talks about the Eucharist in book four, Calvin and, and, Cranmer would have absolutely um, been kindred spirits. Um, they, they, I mean, they did have a little bit of correspondence, but, but they would have certainly um, been, been very close in, in their doctrines of the Eucharist. So um, especially later, later Cranmer, uh, early Cranmer was decidedly Lutheran on justification and on uh, uh by just on justification and on the Eucharist. So, yeah. And I mean, you're, so you're talking like 1530s, even <clears throat> maybe even into the, well, 1520s and 30s, I suppose. Right. But, yeah. And that kind of chronologically makes sense. I didn't realize we always, um, we tend to think the, 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 the big three reformers or whatever, be, you know, which Cramner never gets listed in the big three. They always look at the continent of, you know, Luther and Calvin and Zwingli. We, we tend to think they're the same generation, but actually, no, Calvin is um, 26 years younger. And I'm not, we're not going to get into too much biography. I, I really am interested because I just really haven't read or watched stuff on his biography. I'm going to do that before the next time we really talk about Calvin, but he's 26 years younger. And so by the 1530s, he's really not, he's having his conversion experience in the early 1530s, a conversion as in going from a learned humanist scholar but within the Catholic church to a uh, reformer. And that's the 1530s. Cranmer's already, he's already been for over a decade meeting at the white horse sin and discussing this, the, the imported works of Luther that they snuck in. So I guess it would make, <clears throat> I think it, it kind of makes sense as the, as the continental, the continental developments would have yet to have taken place for Cranmer to get it. I mean, that's neither here nor there, but <clears throat> that is a kind of a historical note, which I find kind of just came upon me. I think it's interesting. Yeah, well, and I, I think I think that's a really important point to make going back to something that you said near the beginning of that, which is that people in Protestantism today tend to think of Calvin as a progenitor of continental um reformed theology like that's not true bootser was define progenit um, define that word for me so, so so they think of him as like the father of um the the I, father of continental reformed theology sure. but that was 
that was Bootser in Strasbourg. And Bootser was as much of a mentor to Cranmer as he was to Calvin. Um, so there's a reason why they're very similar in their thought. Um, and, you know, Cranmer and Calvin moved in the same reformed circles, Peter Martyr Vermigli and Bootser, um, to a certain extent, Heinrich Bullinger in, um, in Zurich, um, who was, I think, a, a better theologian on the whole than Zwingli was. Um, he was his, his, uh, his, um, he's the one that took over when Zwingli died in battle of all things. Um, but, but so, so Luther and Zwingli and to a certain extent, Bootser were all first generation reformers, but then you get Calvin or you get, you get Cranmer who's sort of like the mezzanine, like one and a half. And then you get Calvin who comes in afterward. Um, people, People want to put Calvin above Cranmer, but but Calvin was still um, in his studies when Cranmer was already explicating justification by grace through faith alone. Um, That's a good so. point. Yeah, he's he's kind of relatively late late in the game <clears throat> in comparison to those other figures we we talked about. Um, a couple things come to mind. Uh, well, <clears throat> for one, I well today. Uh, just to, to give a heads up for us, we're going to talk about uh, Calvin and his doctrine of the Lord's Supper as, as read in the Institutes. Excuse me. And um, I've always joked that if I could be a fly on the wall for any event in history, if I had a top five historical events that I could have been a fly on the wall for, it would have been the Marburg Colloquy, which was an attempt to bring Protestants together to, I don't know if they were called Protestants yet, to, to bring reformational thought to, to unify it around the Lord's Supper, uh, which didn't, or just to unify it around doctrine in general. <clears throat> I think it was the deed of Augsburg when they were first called Protestants, and it was a, it was an epithet. Right. And um, that's kind of why we maybe dropped it more on the show and preferred reformation. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I don't care. I, I don't care, but it's not a dirty word for me. No, uh, it's I certainly me. protest some of the excesses of, um, of, of, of the papacy of Rome. Of yeah, what I protest the excess, excesses of the papacy. I protest the excesses of liberal Protestants. <laughs> I, I mean, protest yeah. a lot of excesses, right? Um, but anyways, both um, like to pontificate, right? Uh, I'll get off my soapbox, but um, no. <laughs> um, what was I going to say? Oh, so yes, the Marburg Colloquy, which was they, which was um, called to bring the reformers together on doctrine and it on many points of doctrine it did but famously or infamously however you want to look at it it did not on the eucharist uh this was a very this was a point of division and of course the big two people there obviously at this colloquy at this meeting were martin luther and Ulrich zwingli they had their um maybe a shouting match from what I've heard the accounts of and Luther had kind of just walked out, um, <clears throat> which it would have been interesting to see. Gotta, gotta, gotta admit. Um, and we did an episode, with Dr. Jack Kilcrease a couple of years ago about <clears throat> the differences between Lutherans and Zwingli. I thought today, um, I think Calvin is to be appreciated as a mediator in that regard of that debate. I don't, I think he, he, you know, what, for what Zwingli's doctrine was just, too crude it didn't speak um on on the the many planes and dimensions and 
spiritual level that I thought Calvin's did. And I think it'd be good to get that today. And on that note, of course, James, <clears throat> James and I are both Anglicans here in the Episcopal Church. We have a lot of Episcopal slash Anglican listeners in our articles of faith, in our 39 articles, article on the Eucharist uh, very much takes its cue from the way Calvin thought and systematized uh, the Eucharist. Though I would argue maybe he's, he's, he didn't, um, he's not the originator of speaking um, of the Eucharist in that way, the reception of it, of even a spiritual manner. Um, I imagine Bootser and some of the other continental reformers, you know, shortly before him were already speaking of it in those terms. We'll get more into it, but Luther couldn't see it in those terms. He said is means is. <laughs> Don't get me started on that now. I'm going to get out. I, you, it will come out in here. I, I, full disclosure, I love, um, as many listeners know, we both here love Martin Luther. I have a Lutheran right. upbringing. A lot of my education, my graduate works in, at a Lutheran institution. Um, he's, he's influenced me and and like no other person in history yes other than jesus and right. saint paul <laughs> but um but i think lutherans make a straw man out of calvin's understanding of the eucharist um and we're gonna get into that i think in this episode. and the reformed make a straw man out of the lutheran view of the eucharist so they have they do but i haven't I, I, give me an example because i haven't really heard that much it seems like they're always on the not defensive. It seems like oh, maybe because I follow a lot of Lutheran pages on social media, they're always picking on the Reformed. But uh, well, the you know I, I going to college when I did and where I did, um, the young restless and reform movement was pretty big, and we had a big apologetics um, camp uh, group um, at at, uh, at at my school, and from them and from others. Um, I heard um, a lot of carping about the Lutheran view of the Eucharist, and I've heard it very recently, even from some big names within Anglicanism that I don't want to, I don't necessarily want to say who it is because they may listen to this podcast and that's okay. Are they all in but, Australia? No. Okay. <laughs> no, it's not River. <laughs> not River. No. I was talking about some of the established, you know, some of the Sydney guys that go way back and I don't know. Right, right. Write no, a lot but, of stuff, you know. But, but I'm the, getting already getting too specific. I'll shut up now. No, you're fine. So, so uh, the idea is that they sort of say that the Lutheran view of the Eucharist, Luther's view of the Eucharist, um, is basically just sort of a light version of transubstantiation. It is an opus operato. Um, event where you know whether you have faith or not you can receive jesus when you receive the sacrament because he has objective presence there um and and so there is a sense of objective presence with luther it's not described in the way that transubstantiation is described to be sure but um the way that i've read luther and the way i've heard luther expounded is that Luther's understanding of the Eucharist and reception of the Eucharist is contingent upon faith as well. You receive Christ either way, but you receive Christ for you or Christ against you, which right. is why which is why he arrives at the you know at the same conclusion that that uh, Paul does in First mm -hmm. Corinthians eleven about 
um, or is it 10? I don't remember. Discerning receiving the body. unworthily, um, receiving it to your condemnation if you don't discern the body. Right. Um, and we'll get into the, I don't know, some of the, I don't want to say semantics. I'm not reducing it to just a semantical difference, but, but the, you know, we'll, we'll get into to that too, I think. Um, sure. As far as what constitutes receiving Jesus, what does that mean? Um, <clears throat> I guess we'll get a little bit in the weeds with some of that stuff. But um, one of the things that's one one thing that frustrates me about um, a lot of just discussion on the Eucharist, especially on the popular level, but also in more sophisticated levels, is the preoccupation with the question of presence. Because I think that's that's an important aspect, but but related to the other aspects of a good of 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 sound eucharist theology which involves us which mm -hmm. involves the receivers result uh involves the the being united with christ and the effects of, of benefits of the grace of christ being received um that that doesn't get touched on a lot um and um i think calvin has a beautiful articulation of that um which is um virtually identical to to how we read it in the articles of faith penned by cramner so um <clears throat> we'll we'll get into that i'm, I'm trying to, so i i've read i read the so I, for, for our literature for our um for our listeners i per, i'm a relatively late reader to the institutes um i purchased it on logos um which is you know the bible slash theological reads software that you can <clears throat> get a bunch you know it's a good study tool for pastors and theologians right. um been enjoying it um it's the second my second favorite purchase on there after luther's works um both of what I, which i went on a payment plan for uh, <laughs> <laughs> i mortgaged my house so i could i'm just kidding uh right. so um um yeah, the uh, two volumes. So it's, it's I. I'm reading the two volume edition of Calvin's Institute of in the Institutes of Religion. Um, that now who's the editor of that again, James? And and tell us about a, another book that that person wrote. So the two best known English translations of the Latin 1556 Institutes. The 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 last edition of the institutes um the the two sort of definitive translations one was done in the 19th century by a guy named henry beveridge and the other by ford lewis battles in the middle of the 20th century and ford lewis battles's translation is definitely the definitive the really definitive translation it's a very very well translated version of uh, of the, the the latin and ford lewis battles who is who was basically the the best scholar of Calvin in the um, in the twentieth century? Also, put together um, a an analysis called "Analysis of the Institutes of the Christian Religion" by of John Calvin. Um, I think he didn't complete it before he died in nineteen seventy five or seventy nine, rather. Um, but he uh, it was helped to be finished by yeah it was. It was first printed in 1980, um, and he died in 79, but it was, he was assisted by John Walkenbach. Um, and it's basically, it goes through and has the same um, chapters and subheadings as the Institutes, 
and gives a brief synopsis slash analysis of what Calvin is saying. It's an, it's immensely helpful. And, you know, the institutes are like between 18 and 1900 pages. And this book is 421 pages. So it, it really is a, um, I think a really good condensed version of, of what, of what Calvin says. I'm interested in, yeah, getting a copy of that book. I think it'd be a helpful aid. I, for, I think it'd, it'd be probably pretty similar on the Lutheran end uh, sources and context of the uh, book of Concord, um, which I don't remember who the writer is. Let me pull that off my shelf. Um, okay. Edited by Colbin Nestingen. So yeah, that's, you know, helpful kind of supplementary read to read alongside to help, um, you know, um, with, with reading the, the, you know, the, because some of these some of the writings i guess in these older older primary works can can um so some of it's not exactly the, the the prose and everything it's not exactly the way we may we may talk today or write today and so it it's a good um good expositions i guess good summaries of what's going on in those works so um but anyways um now that we're i guess we can roll right in i don't know where to start it's kind of like um where would you want to start? What aspect of this maybe when it comes to the Lord's Supper and Calvin? So I think part of part of what might be helpful would be to just sort of get like a 30,000 foot view of of what was going on at the time. So the 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 reformers all took a very particular view about the Eucharist, especially in light of the way that um, uh, the Roman church thought about the Eucharist in the Middle Ages and enshrined the Eucharist, um, enshrined the belief of in transubstantiation, um, or rather a really particular reading of um, Aquinas's understanding of transubstantiation at the Council of Trent. Um, and sort of like doubled down on this Aristotelian metaphysic pertaining to, you know, how we view um, what happens to the bread and wine. And so um, the reformers all were deeply concerned about the fact that that's something that you have, you don't have to have a, you don't have to have faith to receive it because it is an opus operato. I mean, it is, a work within itself um, that um, it 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 is effectual, but in the worst possible way because it's treated almost in a sort of works righteousness manner, um, as opposed to grace. And so Luther, who understands the Eucharist to be effectual, efficacious, it actually does something. Calvin would say the same thing. It absolutely does something. And even Zwingli would say it does something to a certain extent. He would just say that it's more about, I feel like it's probably, this is probably a fair or fair-ish representation of Zwingli. It's, it is an, an, an amnetic. It, it, it causes us to remember what Christ has done. So it does affect something. It's just, it doesn't, it's not a means of grace. 
Um, whereas Luther and Calvin both would treat it as a means of grace. Calvin treats it as a means of grace in his section on means of grace um, under the subheading of the Holy Catholic Church. Um, so I think just understanding that everything is, is subject to scrutiny during the Reformation and um, the two things that, well, really the, the one thing that gets hit really hard um, if you had to choose one would be the Eucharist. Of course, the doctrine of the church gets hit pretty hard in most of the Reformation traditions, but so. hard is in um, getting a lot of revision. Maybe not, I don't know if revision is the best word, but but really having to rethink because obviously both in practice and conception, something had gone awry, right? Awry. Yeah. And, 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 um, and I I don't know if I would say revision either. I think I would probably say that the reformers understood themselves to be retrieving an apostolic, a, pa yeah. a patristic model, as opposed to the accretions that were built up during the Middle Ages. Right. And kind of to to point to um, uh, what the concept of the of the Eucharist of the Lord's Supper became in 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 the high medieval uh, Catholic Church. Um, where it was really just a, a, a work unto itself um and there was so much emphasis on the new reality that now takes place there and that it is christ that the the, the such this, this emphasis on this objective presence um missed the fact you know missed the well first off it, it led to certain what I would call abuses. Um, mm -hmm. I know there's certain Anglican circles that love the, 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 the monstrance and putting the wafer in there and parading it around. But I mean, that's the reformers saw that as a weird missing that. I mean, all of them United would say we're missing the point. The Eucharist is a gift to you, right? right. If we want to talk about something objective, it is that you and I, James and I receiving the Eucharist, we, you know, everyone receiving the Eucharist, we are the objects of grace. Mm -hmm. um that is and that is where christ dwells right um you know and that's when when we receive christ that when we receive grace that we, christ is dwelling in us and mm -hmm. so um and i think you know across the board today throughout our more rigorous ecumenical discussions on the everyone would 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 you know at their best say yes that the eucharist that's a chief part of, of why we have the eucharist because it's it's we're being fed with Christ and Christ is entering us. Right. Mm -hmm. And again, that's something I think Calvin so beautifully articulates. So yeah, I, I think, um, I think the other thing is that like one of the big problems in the medieval period, late medieval period, um, where we, you know, find the reformation sort of beginning a new epoch is that there is this long standing tradition by that point that one the mass is all in latin so most of the people don't understand it so there's really no participation in the service and people would receive the eucharist at most like once or twice a year and so there's very little participation whatsoever in in the mass and what calvin and cranmer especially Cramer, I think Cramer better than anyone else. Um, what they wanted to do was to encourage people to actually participate in the liturgy as members of the body of Christ. 
And so when you translate that to their understanding of the Eucharist, like there, there would be a, you know, a dry mass, right? I mean, people would, the priests would basically do what the, what the Orthodox call the Holy Pirouette. He'd turn around with the Eucharist and then turn back around and he himself would receive, but no one else would. Right. And so the idea is that like, just by virtue of being there, there is something that's taking place. Um, but what Cranmer and Luther and Calvin want people to do is to eat and drink the body and blood of Christ, whether it's a spiritual or corporal corporeal presence, um, that they eat and drink the body and blood of Christ and receive the benefits of Christ. Right. Um, but that is so deeply mis like the, 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 the medieval high, you know, the, the, the medieval mass, um, um, the medieval doctrine of the Eucharist totally misses the mark in that regard. Um, I don't know. What, what do you think? Is, is that safe to say? I think that, well, yeah. And I, I think that's, um, you know, I, I, I recognize there's, um, you know, there, we have the communication and, and everything of, of that time. I mean, there, you know, for instance, like there, Luther didn't have the fullest understanding of Thomas Aquinas, you know, that's an example sure. that, that we do now. Um, the whole, like the whole you mass as a sacrifice. It wasn't exactly what some Protestants characterize to be, but I think overall, yes, again, in practice and concept, um, the, the Eucharist, especially in a, in a language in, that wasn't vernacular, it, it definitely, um, it definitely, and then with, with the, I would say accretions and the adoption of these practices of the Eucharist of what they were not clearly not ordained for by Jesus in the scripture, all of it led to people, the, the, the rethinking and retrieval that we're going to get into. Um, mm -hmm. And in this episode, how it, how it comes to through, through Calvin's work. Um, and that's a good segue. You mentioned, you know, both Luther and Calvin wet, they they stress you know the benefits of the eucharist and the participation of us in the body of christ not even just the liturgy but literally by receiving the eucharist you're participating in his body both was important for them however they had their differences um that um the issue that i think we are too often preoccupied on but we got to spend some time on is is on presence is a corporeal or spiritual and this is where i think um you know this is a whole idea i think that well, if it, it's more real, if it's like the bodily, if it's the corporeal, right? It's just like oh. this, um, we, we, and it's almost like maybe we've made this corporeal spiritual distinction too, too strong. Cause I oh. think from reading the Institutes, I think Calvin believes we feed on Christ's corporeal body and blood in a spiritual manner. Right. Because the spirit, we cannot understand because Calvin, as much as he's charged with being a rationalist, like in that quote I shared earlier, mm -hmm. he emphasizes over and over again how we just need to pause and and be in awe of the mystery that we will never comprehend. And it is through the spirit, which we, we cannot understand fully how the spirit works, that we somehow are united and feed on the very body and blood of jesus christ he's not saying it's 
Um, it's like we're feeding on his body and blood. He's not saying we're feeding on representation. He's saying we are feeding on Jesus' very body and blood. And I think that whole, I don't know, I'll call it the nuance or whatever, that gets missed by, I mean, the Lutheran and Roman Catholic critics of like what they say right. is Calvin's doctrine. I don't know. What do you say? I have some quotes to share. I haven't gotten into sharing quotes. Maybe we don't even need to share a lot of quotes. I, I will point our listeners. I'm, I've, I've been reading a lot from book four of Calvin's Institutes. Um, I mean, if you get the two volume, it's two volumes or the one volume is one volume, but it's, it should be under, yeah, book four and it's under chapter 27, the sacred supper of, of yeah. Um, yeah, the sacred supper of Christ. So, and what it brings. Uh, so, well, so sorry, James, I, were you going to say that? Yeah, I, I, I was going to say that um, I think that, yeah, I, I think that we do often get caught up in the corporeal or spiritual presence argument and not to denigrate that because it is important, but at some point, we do have to ask how many angels are can dance on the head of a pin. I mean, or, or that's what we're arriving at is how many angels can dance on the head of a pin. Um, now I say that and I'm going to immediately walk it back a little bit because, you know, Calvin has been accused of being an historian because he doesn't believe in the communicatio idiomatum, mm -hmm. right? So he believes that there, are, there is no communication uh, between the divine and human attributes, the divine and human natures of Christ. So this is in his um, section on the doctrine of ubiquity, mm -hmm. where um, Luther says that Christ is present in the Eucharist um, because Christ is able to be present anywhere. Um, Christ is present wherever he is for you mm -hmm. and wherever he has made a promise to be present. That's where he is. Yep. Um, it's an eminently reasonable argument and makes a lot of sense. Yeah, and Luther didn't have a sophisticated doctrine of ubiquity. That's I think he 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 simply said, look, Jesus said, and we'll get into that. I think some of the problems with just leaving it at, oh, he says it is, it is, that means it is. We'll get into right. that. Right. But <laughs> he, he he would say, you know, he, of course he's able, we don't know why he's able to be everywhere his 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 human humanity and divinity are not divided jesus is able to be everywhere but it was literally it was only like it was later people within the lutheran reformation that developed that doctrine a little farther um in a way that even like the medieval catholic church and like that they didn't recognize that as really it was kind of a uh it was very much an, an it was an innovative thing in many ways but i'm sorry i'll dig i digress well, no, 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 that, that's, that's helpful because I think where Calvin, um, where, where Calvin gets Luther wrong um, to a certain extent is that Luther, um, well, I'm, I'm, I'm reading Luther a little bit here through um, what I remember of Charlie saying on the first episode, he was on the podcast about the the gainus majesticum and all the other sort of protestant lutheran uh lutheran orthodoxy designations by like johann gerhard um specifically attacking calvin's attack on luther um and i think that i think the trouble is 
that one, if there is no communication of attributes, then that does leave you open to a two persons, two natures argument, a Nestorian um, criticism um, or, or criticism of possible Nestorianism. Um, but also it hampers Christ so that he is only able to be present via mediation through the Holy Spirit. So it's only by means of the Holy Spirit that Christ is made present. And that also kind of can conflate the Holy Spirit and Christ. Um, so that, that could lead some to some trouble there. But um, it also, I think, um, does lend itself to some criticism because it softens Christ's own promises that he said, I will be with you, not I will be with you so long as the Holy Spirit mediates my presence with you, but I will be with you. And it's a statement, a, a rock solid statement. But isn't it, I'm going to be devil's advocate here, and, and um, isn't it, isn't there plenty in scripture to, to say that the Holy Spirit is Christ's spirit, not in the sense that I have a soul, but but you know what I mean? The Trinitary, the Trinity can't be separated, and there's plenty to go off Um on a basis of scripture that um, Jesus is mediated through um, the Holy spirit, because that it's, it is how, I mean, we go to pe the Pentecost event and it is how Christ, the, the Christ, as, as I would put it in his person and in his content of who he is and who he is for, how it is now enlivened in believers after his ascension is through the power of the Holy Spirit, which is his Holy Spirit. I mean, and there's, um, and I, now I get what you're saying with Calvin opens himself up when you're trying to say, when you're trying to keep this distinction between Jesus's divinity and his, and his humanity. So keep them both, you know, in their, in their, in their place. Yes. You can, you can run the risk of driving the wedge between, which is Nestorianism. I think Calvin right. especially didn't do himself any favors when he said, well, you can only call Mary the mother of God in a sense. Um, right. Certainly didn't help, but I would, but couldn't a reformed person equally say of the Lutherans, okay, you want to have these attributes communicating to each, uh, to what extent, again, maybe we're getting into angels, but on ahead of a pen, to what extent can this communication, when is it? What, what's your distinction between them communicating each other and, and blending together, which would be, you know, another classical heresy, monophysitism. So right, right. it's, it's, it's a hard, I don't think it's an easy thing. I think I like Anglicanism because we, we tried to take them both. Well, <laughs> I, put them I, in the I articles. Think, I think what we're both touching on here is that there's a tendency toward ad hominem, right? Whenever people read Calvin or people read Luther, because they have their own clearly defined perspective. With regard to mediating the presence of Christ, I, I do I do want to be very careful with that because obviously Pentecost and when Christ promises that he will be with the disciples in John's gospel and sends the Holy Spirit in that Johannine Pentecost, um, that there is a sense of mediation there. But Christ's mediation is not limited to the Holy Spirit, I guess is what I'm saying. Whereas um, it would seem as if there is almost an aspect of subordination, almost. And I do want to be careful about these things because I'm not trying to accuse Calvin, someone 
who I do deeply love as a theologian. But the the trouble is um, that Calvin, so so Luther has a very clear understanding of the God preached and the God not preached, the hidden God and the revealed God. Right. And Calvin does too. Calvin will frequently talk about the hidden counsels of God and 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 things like that. But Calvin is far more willing to engage in speculation, far more willing to dig into the hidden God than Luther is. Right. And the trouble is that you get places like double predestination, which leads to theodicy. Yeah. Um, and you get um uh oh, what was the other one I was thinking of? So double predestination and another one. Oh, limited atonement. Oh, okay. Yeah. Which so, is so like, I mean, granted, that's more Doherty in Calvinism, but Calvin certainly has the seeds of that in 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 the Institutes. Mm-hmm. Um, but like, Calvin is willing to take things just a step farther than Luther, and by doing that, he digs in, yeah. you know, a full shovel's breadth into the hidden God. I think when it comes to double predestination and his, maybe you could say a proto limited atonement idea that's i think that is definitely where i think the charge against calvin on that um is is fair uh, and i think i i think anglicanism went with luther on that i i the the article on predestination um from what i've read from scholars of the 39 articles that that is not um i wish i had it in front of me to read it but but we we go with with more of the pauline sense of a single predestination while you're getting that open, while you, you can share that in a moment, James, I do want to share a quote from Calvin to get us on to the next thing. Um, it, Calvin says, uh, and this is, again, this is where he gets accused of Nestorianism. And for our listeners, Nestorianism was the classical heresy. I know we've been talking about it for five minutes now, but a lot of our listeners will know it, but it's a classical heresy where um, Jesus's divinity and his um, humanity uh, were kept so distinct that almost he can only he can only will in one way he can only will himself as a divine person would or will himself as a human person would and he can only suffer um in one way as a human uh, and and you know which when you get to the cross that kind of leads into some problems but anyways um from calvin calvin said let nothing be withdrawn from christ's heavenly glory as happens when he is brought under the corruptible elements of this world or bound to any earthly creatures and two let nothing inappropriate to human nature be ascribed to his body as happens when it is said either to be infinite or to be put in a number of places at once but when these absurdities have been set aside i freely accept whatever can be made to express the true and substantial partaking of the body and blood of the lord which is shown to believers under the sacred symbols of the supper and so to express it that they may be understood not to receive it solely by imagination or understanding of mind but to enjoy the thing itself as nourishment of eternal life. I think again, when I read Calvin there, that's it's one, it's protect, it's the last couple sentences there where he's talking about it as um that they're that it's not merely just um understanding of mind and imagination. Um, because a lot of people think that they, they accuse him of this kind of crude receptionism where um oh it, as long as as long as you have a subjective understanding that makes jesus's body real or it doesn't and 
um, it's not like an understanding. It's it's more than that. It's um, it's a participation. Faith is not just like assent to to a certain knowledge for Calvin. It involves right. that, but it's not that. It, there's a more of a mystical quality to that. Um, right. And for Cramner too, they both speak to this mystical d- dimension of the Eucharist. So, um, in uh, Battles says this, um, he says, in the sacrament, the witness of Christ is so full, it is as if we actually have Christ physically present among us. Take, eat, drink. And another aspect of this that I think is so very Lutheran of Calvin to say, and Calvin once said, I haven't found the quotation from it, but but Dr. Mitchell, um, who, who taught a class that I took on the Institutes, said that Calvin was very clear that Luther was his spiritual father. Yeah, so, there, there's a quote. Um, go ahead. And what were you saying? Well, I, I was just going to say, so Calvin, Calvin is not so easily caricatured um, if you actually bother to read him. Um, right. Mark Mattis, uh, when I took the, the Luther class with him that I did, um, I, I, you know, if he listens to the podcast and, and uh, wants to correct me on this, then feel free. But I seem to remember him saying something like between 75 and 80% of the institutes is deeply Lutheran. Yeah. Um, and I, that's my reading of it. I mean, that's that I think that's a very fair assessment. Yeah. Fun, uh, fun quote from uh, John Calvin. Uh, These good people in Zurich immediately erupts into anger when someone dares to prefer uh, Luther over Zwingli. Like the gospel would sink if Zwingli was injured. And yet Zwingli offers not the slightest injustice for it. You yourself know how far Luther surpasses him when the two are compared. That's a letter John Calvin wrote to somebody. So. Absolutely. <laughs> outside. So, yeah, I mean, um, you know. Well, so what I was going to quote from the, uh, the, the analysis here again is in the same section of that quotation that I just shared, um, Battle says, when he's analyzing what Calvin is saying, he says, the great force of the sacrament is in the words, which is shed for you. Given once for all, for our redemption, Christ's body and blood are represented under bread and wine for us to learn that they are ours and that they are destined as food for our spiritual life. Mm -hmm. Luther would, I think, uh, quibble over um, represented uh, because that that word um, can have more than one meaning to be sure, but, but Calvin will frequently refer to the Eucharist as a sign, but the idea that the Eucharist is. Augustine refers it to it as a sign. Sorry. I did. No, I, and, and I think, <laughs> I think there are, I think there are a number of instances where Calvin would actually get Augustine a bit more right than Luther would. Yeah. Um, and uh, it, it pains me to say that, but I think it's true. Um, but, but the point I'm getting at here is that there is a deep similarity between Calvin and Luther in that the Eucharist is for them. I mean, in effect, the gospel is for them summed up in the words shed for you, Mm -hmm. for you. Um, so again, I, and, and, and I tend to hear more 
more more Lutheran critique and criticism of Calvin than Calvinist critique of Luther. I do get a fair amount of both, which I suppose that means that I have a breadth of friends. There you go. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But, but I think they, they, they absolutely would agree that, that in the Eucharist, Christ is there for you. Mm-hmm. And if we want to dig further and talk about corporeal presence or spiritual presence in the end, the fact that Christ is here for you and that Christ's presence for you is efficacious. Those are the grounded, like clear, most important aspects of the Eucharist. Um, and the rest is, I mean, dare I say, a secondary concern. Yeah. Well, um, no, I think it's it's very much um, the emphasis on something for you uh, is what unites both Luther and Calvin. Um, not wanting to to spend all the time on the presence, but I, I I didn't I did want to address, you know, when it comes to the to the characters of Calvin's theology that you'll often hear from. Lutherans is that um is this, they say well Jesus said himself this is my body he didn't say he represented right. he said is means is and I just think that's such a disingenuous thing argument to lodge like it's like because I think they're they're trying to suggest that Jesus's words aren't good enough for Calvin that Calvin has to over rationalize what it means just so he can have his symbolic understanding but for one, Calvin doesn't have a simplistic, crude, symbolic understanding. Um, symbols are, are but, but there's this um, metonymy, not metaphor. Metonymy is the word. Am I pronouncing it right? That mm-hmm. is what that is the word Calvin uses to describe how um, when Jesus says "is," how that word is 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 functioning because. Um, I'm going to quote Derek Thomas over at uh, Reformation 21. He, 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 I'll put a link to in the show notes. Derek Thomas says, Calvin's detractors, I think this is fair for him to say, Calvin's detractors lose all sense of grammar and, in, and much else in insisting on a special import to the verb is, as though when Paul says, so is Christ, in 1 Corinthians 12, 12, having spoken to the church, Christ is to be equated with the church's members. This is to fail to see the literary nature of scripture bearing marks of human as well as divine authorship. Thus, we find acrostics, alliteration, analogy, anthropomorphism, cadence, consonants, dialogue, et cetera, et cetera. Um, it's like, do we not get, I mean, uh, when, when Lutherans make that argument, it just angers me because because it just, it that didn't anger me. Fr- I find it frustrating. Right. Sure. Be careful. I'm about to lose half my Lutheran listeners here, but they're going to think I've gone Calvinist. Well, it shouldn't surprise you. I'm Anglican. So we, you know, we are, we're Calvinist on things and Lutheran on some things. So via right. media. anyways, uh, so, but I just think it's, it's, um, it's because they're not getting, they're, they're not catching the, the, you know, it, it, there, there's a meme I saw. I'm really going to get myself in trouble. There's there's a meme I saw from a Lutheran page and I remember liking it at the time and laughing about it. Now later, I just think it was so unfair and had a, um, a Lutheran on one side and he was like a, for our internet subculture, a Chad, right? He was this pumped up buff, uh, Lutheran, <laughs> Luther bro. Um, um, on one side and then like a weak little beta male, um, who's supposed to be like the reform side on the other. 
and the little beta male saying, but Jesus also said, I'm the vine, but he's not really a vine. Or he also said, I'm the door, but he's not really a door. And then like the Luther bro on the other side is saying, he's saying, brother, Jesus is the only true door. And like, at first I'm like, I'm like, oh, he owned him. But I'm thinking like, actually, no, that's exactly what Calvin's saying. Calvin is saying like, <laughs> yeah, Jesus calls himself the door because literally he is the way to eternal life and the only way. And so that's, that's, he is the end. Like it's, it's, it's like, they don't have a sense of, it's not just like sloppy metaphors. It's, it's, um, profound uses of words from our Lord and savior um, where a word will point to something related to um, related to what it, it's, it, it's accomplishing. So um, you know about the you, sign and things signified. Yeah. And so yeah. it's, it's, it's just an unfair to say, well, is means is no, it's not that simple right. because if, and Calvin points out in the institutes, um, where is it where he says, um, well, when he points to the, uh, rock in, um, well, when the rock is referred to in, in, in the rock that Moses smashed, right. We, First Corinthians, yeah, uh, Paul refers to it yeah. as Christ, but obviously it's like you know, it's like what what you're gonna say Jesus has to be literal here, but he but Jesus doesn't and other biblical authors don't have to be literal here. It's like um again, the I see the same literary nature all around. So um right. it yeah, it's uh that's just kind of my frustration with that. But you you look like you've been digging through a book. And so I, uh, I picked up Brian Garish's book, uh, Grace and Gratitude, the Eucharistic Theology of John Calvin. And I was trying to see. Interesting. I, actually... I did not know about this book. I know B.A. Garish because uh, he's written all kinds of stuff on modern theology that good, so this good is... historian of 19th, 20th century stuff. But I didn't know he wrote a book on Calvin's. Yeah. yeah so so um, so Garish is. um this is the book that is um, frequently quoted by um, Ashley Null when talking about when you talk about Cranmer's theology of the Eucharist, you you have to look at the different ways of understanding the Eucharist and the Reformation, um, like symbolic parallelism um, and all of that, which are all distinctions <laughs> that are uh, that are parsed out in this book. And I'm trying to find. A good quotation right um, well here's the calvin quote on the the i was trying to find earlier about the the rock that the israelites drank from accordingly as the apostles teach this from calvin as the apostles teach that the rock from which spiritual drink sprang forth for the israelites was christ in first corinthians 10 verse 4 because it was a visible sign under which that spiritual drink indeed truly was but was not discernible to the eye so the body of christ today is called bread inasmuch as it is the symbol by which the Lord offers us the true eating of his body. I mean, doesn't Calvin make a very good point with saying um, you don't discern through the visible eye? Right. I, mean, I think he's making a very good point there. <laughs> well, yeah, because I mean, like, you know, the 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 tendency in sort of pious myth in the Roman Catholic Church is to, you know, 
say that when people have had um, a, a lacking faith, they've actually witnessed transspeciation take place, right? That the the bread and wine actually become physical human flesh and physical human blood. And that is a sort of mystical way um, in which they have verified before their eyes that this is Christ for them. I, I've got real problems with transspeciation, not to mention transubstantiation. Um, if God wants to do it, he can. I mean, he's sovereign, um, but I don't know that he does um, mm -hmm. because it doesn't it doesn't help. Um, it doesn't it doesn't do what what it's supposed to in effect. Um, but I, I think that I, I think the the trouble is and I've said this already, but but to reiterate, the trouble that I see in this argument is that it's fraught because everyone has a very clear perspective on what they believe about the Eucharist. And in social media, 140 character culture, <laughs> um, the only way that you can arrive at, you know, any sort of argument is through caricature and straw man right um and and not only that but like i'm guilty of this um hopefully not as much in recent years but certainly in the past of talking about something when i haven't actually read it mm -hmm. so like most of the detractors that i have um that i have read who have created or parroted a caricature of calvin are people who haven't actually bothered to read Calvin. Right. And this is actually less Lutherans than other Episcopalians who yeah. are um, perhaps a bit more Anglo-Catholic in their perspective. And uh, and ignore uh, the Articles of Faith. Uh, the, the Articles of Religion, <laughs> yeah. they, they, they <laughs> Articles well, of Religion. Well, even if they didn't ignore them, they would just say, like I had somebody say to me the other day, they contain error, and I'm glad that they're not actual formularies of um, of Anglicanism. And I'm like, well, it takes me back to that article I wrote for EFAC a while ago. Yeah. If Anglicanism is everything, then it's nothing. Which we did a whole episode on this podcast on for our listeners to, if you haven't listened to it yet, great article James wrote, broke it down um, about what you've said in there. Um, yeah. But yeah, I, I, I have, so I actually haven't and that's this is an example of where I need to be mindful about what I'm saying. I haven't re yet read this book. Um, I was looking for a quotation that I could pull from it, but uh, perhaps you're talking about the Garish uh, book. He's holding between up right the, now. Yeah, sorry, uh, I, I keep forgetting we're only on audio, but yeah, the Garish book. Um, I have read the Institutes, um, but uh, maybe I'll see about um, digesting a fair amount of it before we next talk about the Institutes so that we can have a little oh yeah I'd, I'd be interested in reading it again I, I know garish and my studies from uh being a great um historian and expositor of 19th and 20th century theology so i imagine he's a good expositor for any era of uh right any theologian um yeah and uh yeah so i you know i that's basically what i mean i just mainly wanted to talk about the supper today and like a 
for our listeners, like I said, uh, we'll James and I will be revisiting Calvin and or Calvin's Institutes for kind of a, I don't know, sub-series or Calvin series, I guess we'll call it. Um, you know, and so look, we look forward to doing uh, more episodes. Um, I did want to share one quote and and then any thoughts? I mean, I'm not pressing you for time. I hope, James, I mean, I could stay on no, no. I want to get any any and all thoughts you have after this because that wasn't my intention to necessarily wrap the episode up, but, you know, obviously we'll have to at some point. But um, the... Uh, another accusation well and i already mentioned this another kind of uh thing i hear against calvin and you heard it in the quote is that he he tries to rationalize things and i think he's guilty of that at times and i think sure. james mentioned the double predestination i think that's an area where he's starting to peer into the hidden god and that's um you know that's he he has that distinction of the hidden and revealed god that luther does but he loses sight of it i think um um unfortunately but um the, the whole idea that he's you know his doctrine of the eucharist just comes from pure rational speculation i just think is a is a is a bunk accusation and i'll read this quote quote um and this is calvin on the accusation the accusation that he's using reason um he says quote but the infamy of this falsehood cannot be completely purged until another accusation is wiped away for they boast that we are so bound to human reason that we attribute no more to the power of God than the order of nature allows and common sense dictates. From such wicked slanders, I appeal to the very doctrine I have taught, which shows clearly enough that I do not, do not at all measure this mystery with the measure of human reason or subject it to the laws of nature. I ask whether it is from physics we have learned that Christ feeds our souls from heaven with his flesh, but our bodies are nourished by bread and wine. Whence does this power to quicken souls come to flesh? All men will say it comes not by nature. It will be no more pleasing to human reason that Christ's flesh enters into us to be our food. In short, anyone who has tasted our doctrine will be seized with admiration for God's secret power. Right. Um, unquote. I uh, thought that was to hear it from him. And, you know, it, I, yeah, I just think it's... um. At least with the Eucharistic doctrine, it's I don't sense that Calvin's doing that. And I mean, anyone reason is not again. I, I the, the the Christian theological tradition has had an interesting relationship with with reason and, and whatever concept of reason over the ages. And, and Luther famously had a had a low view, a dim view of of reason, and that he wasn't the first. Athanasius, um, and I think Calvin very much. Uh, would agree with Luther on that. Calvin believes in the to total depravity of human beings. Um, oh, yeah, you know, I mean, our reason is very limited in what it can do. It's infected by sin. Our, our, you know, reason does not trump um, what is dictated and, and and revealed to us by God, whether we can fathom it or not. Reason right. can take over to try to, you know, um, but none of the none of the great theologians, not Luther, not Calvin, not Athanasius would say that reason is that means reason is bad period in fact they would say reason can be equipped for um the sound you know proclamation of the gospel the interpretation of scripture right. um, you know um framing our theology um they all use reason that's not it's not like it's I'm not saying they didn't see it as neutral, but they saw it that there is a way reason can, because obviously that's how we, that's our faculty from which we operate as humans with everything. Right. So it's, it's just unfair to say that, 
you know, reason. It doesn't have to be this boogeyman word, reason. Ooh, I'm scared. I'm scared of reason. Well, and, and, you know, I think um, the way that we as Anglicans understand reason is the way that Richard Hooker talks about reason as, in effect, the the faculty by which we can arrive at things like homoousios, right? You know, the word homoousios is never used in scripture. So if we take a pure nuda scriptura view, then we wouldn't be able necessarily by only the actual words of the text to arrive at homoousios. Which means that Jesus and the father are of one. Are of this one substance. One substance, right. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So, so like we have to use our God-given Holy Spirit enabled, um, you know, reasoning faculties to arrive at that conclusion, deducing it from scripture, which is very clear on that point that, you know, leads us to that conclusion, but we still have the conclusion to make and it's made, you know, centuries before Nicaea, but it's enshrined at Nicaea, right? So like, Reason is not, as you said, a boogeyman. Reason is a God-given, beautiful faculty that we have, but it's often corrupted because the old Adam, as um, as one friend of mine um, likes to say, um, that bastard is a good swimmer. Um, Let's name yeah. the episode that that bastard is a good swimmer. There you go. Um, yeah. Well, uh, we could we could do that. We could do a whole <laughs> other episode about that. Uh, but but the um, you know. The, the the old Adam is drowned in, in baptism, but he's a really good swimmer. Um, the, you know, the, the old Adam still constantly wants to use our faculties for the curving in on ourselves. Mm-hmm. Um, and so by ourselves, we're naturally going to, you know, want to curve in on ourselves, especially in, in biblical interpretation. And this is how we arrive at the debates that we have today in, in, um, with regard to scripture surrounding human sexuality, surrounding, you know, myriad different um, concerns is um, we take our preconceived notions, superimpose them eisegetically upon scripture, and then get upset when anybody questions it or says, well, actually, that's not what scripture says. Right. There's a, well, that's just your interpretation. I have mine. It's like, no, it's not a free for all. That's um, the biblical version <laughs> of that's your truth. That's not my truth. Yeah, right. Uh, which could get us into a whole nother fun discussion, but and a mess, I'm sure. James, I'm glad you came on to discuss this. And so, um, and uh, always love having you on. I mean, you're a frequent co host, and our listeners know you well, but. Well, good one more thing I'll say about Calvin as a sort of hopefully an introit for, for Calvin is what I've said on the podcast before, which is I love Calvin and Calvin is really the one who made me a Lutheran because Calvin, where he and Luther are in agreement, writes as beautifully as anyone you've ever read. There are times when I read the Institutes and I'm not a crier, but there are times when I read the Institutes where I was bawling because of how beautiful wow. it is. Yeah. Wow. And Calvin wow. can do that. But yeah. Calvin can also get things super wrong. Mm-hmm. And you know, that's okay because he's going to get called on it. Um yeah. we could do an episode on the difference between Calvin and Luther's understanding of the law. 
And I'm totally behind Luther on that. I think yeah. Calvin totally gets it. I, I think as again, you talked in the beginning about our episode with Zach Hicks, I think Hicks and his read of Cramner and I, I Cramner uh, went with Luther on the reading of the law over Calvin. Um, we just have to hope that, uh, that, that Sam and Drew don't listen to this. Episode. Oh, they, they know they, yeah. I mean, they're, they're <laughs> <laughs> God will call whichever one of ones of us out of whoever's wrong. That's right. That's right. That's right. <laughs> well, thanks, man. Um, yeah. God bless. Take care, brother. We'll uh, we'll see you on here again for our listeners. Um, look forward to having you tune in again. Uh, wishing everyone a good transition from su- summer to fall and um, wherever you are. <laughs>